Well, the rest of you, I'd like you to open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as we return to our series, which I have entitled, The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation. This is our series through the book of Romans, and I want to thank Pastor Don for helping me with the art on this slide. That's a step up for me. So the unbreakable chain of salvation refers to the divine covenant of redemption that was entered into by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in eternity past. That covenant provides salvation for all of those who were chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and called and regenerated by the Spirit. That salvation becomes ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We will see the chain of salvation described in great detail over the course of our study through this glorious letter. Today, we'll pick up where we left off in Paul's introductory sentence of this letter. Verses 1 through 7 are actually one sentence in the original Greek. We will read that entire sentence, review what we learned in my last sermon, verses 1 through 4, and then look more closely at verses 5 through 7. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of our text. Romans chapter 1. This is God's word to us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you, who are being called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. So in my last sermon, we focused on verses 1 through 4. In those verses, we noted three things. First, who the author is, second, the theme of the letter, and third, the focus of the letter. I want to just give you a thumbnail of what we learned. First, the author. The author was Paul, who describes himself as both a slave of Christ and an apostle of Christ. An apostle who was set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. Note that. It's not Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's God's gospel 
message. Second, the theme of the letter. The theme is the gospel of God, the good news that salvation has been provided for us by God through the redemption provided for us by Jesus, the Son of God. And this salvation becomes ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the wonderful extra good news that we who are sinners can have our sins forgiven and removed and be credited instead with the righteousness of God's Son. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then we looked at the focus. What is, what is the focus of this letter? Or I should say, who is the focus of this letter? The focus is on Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming a man and dwelt among us as the promised Messiah, the descendant of King David. Jesus, who became our Savior through his life of perfect obedience, obedience to the Father and his voluntary sacrificial death upon the cross. It was through his death burial and resurrection, that we were redeemed and reconciled to God if we put our faith and trust in Him for our salvation. He is the one through whom we can receive the grace that we need to be saved. Now in the next three verses, we will see three more profound truths. First, God's provision for us in the gospel. Second, the ultimate purpose for the gospel. And third, the privileges that are given to those who believe the gospel. First, the provision for us in the gospel. Look again at verse 5. In fact, the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So we have received grace and apostleship through the gospel. Grace to be saved and apostleship meaning we become his messengers. Grace, as we know, is unmerited unearned favor that comes from God. As I've already said, salvation is by grace alone. Because we are sinners. Wholly undeserving of God's mercy. Instead, wholly deserving His wrath that is due for our sins. So thank God salvation comes by grace alone. Because God chooses, chooses to bestow His grace upon us. Those that He has chosen for salvation. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. In a very familiar passage. We all know. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved. Through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
We're saved by grace. Not our own doing. Not because we're better or smarter or better looking than anyone else. But because God chose to bestow His grace upon us. Grace is God's loving mercy through which He grants salvation as a gift to all of those who trust in His Son. God Himself brings them to spiritual life through the gospel message and through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and gives the gift of saving faith which compels us to believe in and trust upon Jesus Christ as both our Savior and as our Lord. Salvation does not come by birthright. It doesn't come by baptism, by dedication, by communion, by church attendance, by church membership. It doesn't come by keeping the Ten Commandments, by serving other people, or even serving God. Nor does it come by simply believing that there is a God or that Jesus Christ is His Son. It only comes when a person is made alive by the Spirit of God, repents of their sin, and calls upon Christ in faith for their salvation, and then responds to Christ as their Lord. As has been said, Jesus is not your Savior if He is not your Lord. All of this is a gift of God's grace to us. As Paul writes to the Romans later in this letter in Romans 3, 23 and 24, he writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. So God provides for us the gift of salvation. And God works in our hearts so that we repent of our sin and receive that gift. And all the glory goes to Him. So through Jesus Christ we've received grace but also apostleship. That is, we become His messengers. We are commissioned by Christ to be His messengers to the lost, to be His witnesses. Now the Greek word here, apostolos, which is normally transliterated as apostle, has the basic meaning in the Greek of one who is sent on a mission. Now, Understand, this is not to be confused with the 13 men, including Paul, who were called by God into the office of an apostle. Okay, We don't use the title apostle today, do we? Because that would not be proper. That would be confusing. But nevertheless, all of us who belong to God through faith in Christ are apostles in the more general sense of being sent by Him into the world as His messengers, as His witnesses. That's every one of us 
who have trusted in Christ. We have been saved by God's sovereign grace and He also has sovereignly called us to be His witnesses, to take the gospel message to the lost. We're not to keep the good news of God's saving grace to ourselves. But instead we are to share it with as many others as we are able. And we should be committed to that, to giving the reason for the hope that is within us. Now this brings us then to the purpose of the gospel. Look with me back again at verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. You could tell by my emphasis, there's a couple of key phrases here. First, to bring about the obedience of faith and to do so for the sake of His name. Paul is telling us here that true saving faith is going to result in obedience to the glory of God's name. So Paul is reminding us here that we are being called not just to faith in Jesus Christ, but to obedience of Jesus Christ. Not simply to relate to Jesus as our Savior, but also as our Lord, because He is. In fact, we've just been singing about that, haven't we? He is seated on His throne. He is ruling and reigning. He is our Lord. It is significant that Paul opens this letter with this phrase, the obedience of faith, and he also closes this letter with the same phrase, the obedience of faith. In fact, keep your finger there in chapter 1, turn in your Bible to Romans 16. I want to read the doxology at the end of this letter. Because it's significant that Paul bookmarks this letter with this phrase. Starting in verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul bookends this letter with this same phrase, the obedience of faith. So what does it mean? And why is it so significant? I'm really glad you asked that question. Because like Paul, every believer is called not only to faith in Christ, but also to obedience of Christ. That's what we're called to. A person who claims to have faith in Christ, but whose pattern in life is utter disobedience to God's commands, has never been redeemed and is living a lie. 
faith that does not manifest itself in obedience and good works is not true faith. Now, you know I'm not talking here about perfect obedience because we are still sinners. Amen? So we are not going to have perfect obedience. But there needs to be evidence of obedience to the one who is truly converted. Because that is one of the purposes of our conversion, is that we would now live to the glory of God, to the praise of Christ. So faith that doesn't manifest itself in Obedience and good works is not true faith. As we know from our current Galatians study, we're not saved in the least part by works, no matter how good they are, but we are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should live in them. Ephesians 2.10 When Jesus gave his great commission to the disciples, it included three things for them to do. This is found in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. There were three things they were to do. Number one, go and make disciples. Okay? Go out. Be witnesses. Proclaim the gospel. Be God's instruments to bring others to faith in Christ. Go. Make disciples. Then, baptize them. But the third thing they were to do was to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So, Jesus wants his disciples to observe his commandments. Jesus wants us to live lives characterized by obedience. Remember, Jesus also said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. So, true faith, true love of Jesus is going to be verified by a life characterized by obedience. Together, faith and obedience manifest the inseparable two sides of the coin of salvation, which Paul refers to here as the obedience of faith, or the obedience that comes as a result of Faith. So the proclamation of the gospel is the means that God has ordained to bring about both salvation and obedience of faith. And both for His name's sake. Or in other words, both for the glory of God. All of redemption history, from beginning to end, focuses on the glory of God, as it should. And throughout all of eternity, the accomplishments of His plan of redemption will continue to be a memorial to His love and mercy and grace. You might think of, we might think of ourselves as trophies of God's grace, His love, His mercy. And as we sung earlier, we will be able to sing His praises for thousands 
of years. So the primary purpose of the gospel is to display God's glory and result in further glory to Him. I'm sure you would agree with me that we are so very blessed to be the recipients of God's great love and grace and to become those who in return glorify Him through our praise and worship and obedience and through being His witnesses, proclaiming His gospel and His glory to others. Every time a person comes to true saving faith in Christ, God is glorified because the gift of salvation is entirely by His sovereign will and power and grace. For that reason, God continues to save those He has chosen and we become displays of His power and grace to the praise of His glory. That is the purpose of the gospel. That is the purpose for God saving each and every one of us. That we should live to the praise of His glory. The believers in Rome to whose, whom Paul was writing were among those who had been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And who had been brought to the obedience of faith. And there were tremendous privileges that they enjoyed. So let's look at those privileges. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. He says to them, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to, those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first privilege mentioned is that they are called by God. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. When we talk about the call of God, we often talk about the general call and the specific call. The general call being the preaching of the gospel, or the proclamation of the gospel, or the sharing of of the gospel. These are those to whom the general call was given through that proclamation of the gospel. But in their case, it was accomplished by the effectual calling by the Holy Spirit that resulted in them truly hearing the gospel, seeing their need for salvation, and trusting in Christ for that salvation. We could say this, they had been sovereignly and effectively called by God to Himself. They had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit to both hear and believe the gospel message and put their faith and trust in Christ to be their Savior, to repent of their sin, to serve Him as Lord. We call this effectual calling because it is effectual in other words God cannot be stopped can I hear an amen? amen if God chooses to save someone guess what 
they will be saved. Nothing can thwart the will of God. He cannot be ultimately resisted. His will will be done. Now, sometimes, and quite often actually, God allows a little resistance in us by His grace and His mercy and His patience with us. Abraham is a great example of God crediting his faith as righteousness to him. But Abraham also didn't exactly do what God commanded him to do first time, every time. But God was patient. Did God accomplish his will in Abraham? Absolutely. Right? We could say the same thing about ourselves. I didn't respond to the gospel the first time I heard it, or the second time, or the third time, or the fourth, or the fifth, or, you know. First couple dozen. But when it was my time, that day that God had chosen to save me, my eyes were opened to understand my need for a Savior. And that God had sent His Son to be that Savior. And that His Son had died not just for sin, but for my sin. That brought me to my knees. This was God's work. And so we call this effectual calling because it is always effectual. His calling to... Sinners to salvation is one of the links in that chain of salvation that Paul describes for us later in this letter. Listen to Paul's description in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Paul writes this, For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise be to God. So, what a privilege out of the billions of people on planet Earth that you and I have been called by God to put our faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, and to be saved as a result. Now, we have to grant that from our limited human understanding, it may seem to us that we came to believe in God of our own doing. But God's word clearly reveals to us that God himself caused us to be born again, gave us the gift of saving faith, and called us effectively to surrender to his will for our lives. What a loving, merciful, and gracious God we serve. Amen? But why? Why would God do this for us? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7 that we were and are loved by God. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. By God and called to be saints. 
Paul here addresses all of the believers in Rome as those who are loved by God. This is one of the most repeated and emphasized truths in Scripture. That God is gracious and steadfast in His love for those who belong to Him. Go back to the example of Abraham. Okay? Go back to the example of the children of Israel. Go back to the example of Peter. Right? When he denied Christ three times. Go back to my, the example in my life of my resistance to surrendering my life to Christ. And then even after I had of the persistent sins that I was still involved with. None of that could cancel out God's steadfast love for His children. Paul declares that God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God has great love with which He loves His chosen children. All of us who are parents, we understand the love for our children and our grandchildren. Sometimes we love our grandchildren even more than our children. God loves with an infinite love that is beyond what we can even imagine. And He sets His love on us. And that love can never be lost. John, in 1 John chapter 4, 9 and 10, writes these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I'm sorry, that's 1 John 3, 1. Then, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he writes this. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He has first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we first loved God, but that He first loved us. In fact, He loved us in eternity past when He chose us to be included in His Son. And then sent His only begotten Son to pay the penalty for our sin. Such love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world. So all who trust in Christ for their salvation do so Because they were loved by God. And later in this letter, Paul's going to 
make it very, very clear that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a privilege, what a blessing to be loved by God in that way. Another gracious privilege that we enjoy is being called to be saints by God. The word saint is from the Greek word hagios, which has the basic meaning of being set apart for some holy purpose. In the Old Testament, many things and people were divinely set apart by God for His purposes. The tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, all the furnishings were set apart to Him. The tribe of Levi was set apart for the priesthood. Frequently in the Old Testament, the word holy refers to a person being set apart by God from the world to himself, that they should be holy like him. Under the New Covenant, however, such holy things such as the temple, the ark, the Levitical priesthood no longer exist. God's only truly holy things on earth today are His chosen people. Those whom He loves. Those whom He saves and sovereignly and graciously sets apart for Himself through Jesus Christ. As His church, His set-apart ones, we are His temple. We are His priests. We are declared, declared to be holy and righteous by Him because of what Jesus did for us. We are set apart unto Him through the righteousness of Christ credited to us who are called by Him, loved by Him, and declared to be saints by Him. Now again, I don't encourage you to go around using the title saint because that could bring some misunderstanding, right? Nevertheless, that's the way Paul refers to God's beloved children. Saints. And finally, in his benediction to his introductory remarks, Paul reminds them of another privilege grace and peace that come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only people who can receive the marvelous blessings of divine grace and peace are those loved by God, called by God, and declared to be the holy ones of God. Only they can truly be considered recipients of God's grace and that peace that passes all human understanding. Only they can truly call God their Father. Note that 
The grace and peace comes from God, our Father, Paul writes. Well, He is only your Father if you are His child. And you are only His child if you have responded to His offer to put your faith and trust in Christ for your salvation. When you do, He adopts you into His family and considers you to be His own child. Talk about a privilege. Amen? And to His children, He gives grace and divine peace. God's grace and divine peace are available to all who call upon the name of our Lord for salvation. What a wonderful way for Paul to end his introduction into this glorious letter. Again, this letter will focus on the unbreakable chain of salvation provided for us by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And my prayer for all of us is that this sermon series will be a blessing and will draw us into even closer fellowship with Him and will equip us to be those messengers, those witnesses that God has saved us to be, all to His praise and to His glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for this opportunity for us to, once again, look into Your Word and hear, Father God, Your truth. Thank You, Father God, that You have preserved Your Word for us. And thank You for these glorious truths regarding Your love, Your grace, Your mercy, and this divine plan of salvation whereby You have called us to put our faith and trust in Your Son for our salvation. And when we do, Father God, You adopt us into Your family so that we might now serve You, glorify You through the obedience of faith and by being Your witnesses. And Father, we pray that many more would be brought into this family through our witness, through the witness of this church in this community. Help each and every one of us, Father God, to live to the praise of your glory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. We often think that we uh, don't know enough to evangelize. We don't know enough to defend the truth of the Bible. But an answer to that is to consider that the Bible is the, what holds Jesus, who is declared to be the Lion of Judah. Now, if you had a lion in a cage and you opened the cage and let it out, would you have to defend it? <laughs> Same way with Jesus. Let's stand and, th and sing about this lion that we have contained in our Bibles.
who every time we open them, his spirit just pours out into those who are hearing what we say. You're the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. You ascended to heaven and evermore will reign. At the end of the age, when the earth you reclaim, you will gather the nations before you. And the eyes of all men will be fixed on the Lamb who was crucified. And justice you'll reign at your Father's side And the angels will cry Hail the Lamb Who was slain for the world Ruling power And the earth will reply 